0: I'm Elena.
1: and welcome to History Honeys, the
0: podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past.
1: The the winter has come.
0: Well, Ye- technically, it is like fifty five degrees outside <laughs> right now, but sure.
1: But the New Year is around the corner, and so it's time to go to the movies. Got a few last big blockbusters coming out, yeah. and this is also the time when all the the good stuff is finally getting uh, uh, major wide releases. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought we'd talk about the Hollywood studio system. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, so why do people care about this mode of production, these material conditions?
0: Are you going to tell me why? Well, yeah,
1: I'm going to answer that okay. rhetorical question. Uh, because they produced the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, we're talking about from the early 20s through the 40s, mm-hmm. which uh, is the advent of sound, Yes. To the implementation of uh, the court's decision in United States versus Paramount Pictures, Inc. at all. Okay. We're going to get there.
0: Yeah, I assume you're going to break all this down because that was a long sentence.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a court case between the United States and Paramount Pictures, Incorporated and the other co-defendants at all.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So when we say the Golden Age, we're talking about uh, this period of uh, the the good old days where stars were bright and movies were great and everybody was going all the time. In fact, in 1930, 65% of Americans went to the movies at least once a week and it never dropped below 40% through the entire 30s and then rose back again in the post-war years uh, where a majority of Americans were going to the movies at least once a week throughout the late 40s. Mm-hmm. By 1939, there were more movie theaters than banks in the United States.
0: With The way movie theaters used to operate, that completely makes sense.
1: Yeah. And like I say, this is the time of the great American films and film stars. We're talking about King Kong, Mutiny on the Bounty, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, uh, Bogey and Bacall, James Cagney, Errol Flynn, Cary Grant... Uh, all those good people. All those great people. Yeah. And, of course, 1939, the high watermark in all of U.S. cinema, which had the release of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Gone with the Wind, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, so many uh, all-time great films came out in one single year. Yeah. And, again, all of this happened because of the studio system. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say the studio system, I'm referring to this production line-like System of film production and distribution yes. uh, that was exemplified by the major studios uh, 20th Century Fox, RKO, Paramount, uh, Warner Brothers, and MGM. They were fully vertically integrated operations. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about integration a lot in the 1930s.
0: No. Uh,
1: but this, this is a different kind. This is something else.
0: Very different type of integration.
1: Vertical integration means that one company holds the whole supply chain. Like a uh, example outside of this industry was Henry Ford loved vertical integration. You know, he, he tried to open his own rubber plantation so he wouldn't have to buy the raw materials for his tire factories, for his car factories that went off to his own sales apparatus. Yeah. Right. Vertical integration. If McDonald's buys cattle farms, vertical integration. Yes. And that's exactly how these major studios operated. Uh, the scripts came from studio contracted writers shot by contract directors on studio sets and lots using their own in-house prop shops, costume departments, and everything else with Actors, also on contract, distributed by the studio's own distribution division and distributed to studio-owned theater chains.
0: Hence why so many theaters across the country...
1: Yeah, are called the Paramount. Yeah. Are called the Fox Theater. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Minor Studios, if we're talking about the eight majors... They're major studios. If uh, we're talking about the five majors, these three are the minor studios. It all depends on what list you're reading, really. Mm -hmm. But those were Universal, Columbia, and United artists. They did not own theater chains. UA was also more of a backer and distributor for independent filmmakers than a studio in its own right. Mm -hmm. Each studio also had their own distinct style, dependent on two factors— Their stable of contracted actors and other talent. You know, actors were generally always cast to type, and what type of actors you had determined what type of films they made.
0: Yes, this this is very true.
1: (laughs) And a little bit of geography came into play, where uh, each studio's theater chain had a certain amount of market share in one region or another. What played in New York might not play in the South, So maybe your genres also depended on where these movies were going to be seen. Yeah. So let's go through that list again. MGM had the biggest stable of stars uh, during the height of Hollywood's Golden Age and used them to make the biggest movies, the biggest series. We're talking about Mickey Rooney's Andy Hardy films, uh, the Tarzan series, the the Robin Hood movies. Uh, Their genre films were shot with A budgets on big, lavish sets. Yeah. 20th Century Fox focused on musicals and biographies, and they were basically the house that Shirley Temple built throughout the Depression. Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: a lot of films.
1: (laughs) RKO was home to Fred and Ginger and uh, some madcap comedies. And uh, they also took some risks with the early work of Orson Welles and, of course, King Kong. Paramount had a uh, reputation for sophistication. Uh, They grabbed lots of talent from Europe, especially uh, uh, German directors and uh, English directors and actors. Uh, Marlene Dietrich and Cary Grant were were the big folks on the Paramount lot. Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers was a fast-moving studio. Uh, They didn't have quite the cash on hand that MGM had, for sure. They worked smarter, not harder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they were noted for their gritty, cutting-edge, realistic films or biopics, a lot of war movies, a lot of westerns, and some socially conscious documentary-style films. There was a lot of push within Warner Brothers to make anti-fascist films mm-hmm. in the 1930s, but those always got shot down. So instead, they had films attacking uh, domestic fascism. There were uh, th- there's one classic movie, I can't remember the name. But it's about a factory worker starting to get caught up in an obvious clan analog. And then he shoots a guy in the night who's working against their homegrown fascism and reacts with horror when he hears the news report on the radio the next day that he just shot his best friend in the back. Oh! <laughs> it's a heavy movie. Yeah. But again, the studio's most valuable and important assets were their stars. Stars sold movies. And this is something that uh, any studio boss or producer will still tell you today. Yeah. Yeah. But back then, they were in the star-making business.
0: They were, very much.
1: (laughs) Uh, Actors would be selected based on some quality. They're they're photogenic. They're charismatic. They had comic timing. You know, I watched this vaudeville show. This guy needs to go in the pictures. Or sometimes, you know, the, the lady at checkout at that flower shop, has the most radiant smile, let's get her a screen test. Yeah. But once they were plucked out of wherever they were plucked from, they were made to fit the mold, given a new name. All those stars we mentioned earlier, that none of them, that that's not their given name. Yeah. Not a single one.
0: It's incredibly rare to use a mm-hmm. real name then.
1: Uh, a lot of
0: the names people use nowadays, too, that are actors that's are changed or true.
1: morphed. And morphed to fit the mold of the characters they would be playing. Mm -hmm. Rock Hudson was not named Rock Hudson, but you could imagine any character he played could have been called Rock Hudson. Yeah. The standard contract term for these actors was seven years, with clauses that gave the studio control over their careers and their personal lives with these morality clauses. Now, if you refuse a role, your contract gets extended. Uh, so you better do what you're told, or we're going to be telling you for even longer. Oof. Olivia de Havilland took Warner Brothers to court over this practice and won. Uh, her prize for winning her her freedom of her own career? Being blacklisted for two years from the entire industry.
0: So that didn't go so great.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Betty Davis tried a few years earlier and failed in her suit, so her, uh... She still faced repercussions, but because she was under the studio thumb, they still needed her to make money. Yeah. So she could work. They just made it suck for her. So yeah, studios went to great lengths to manage the public personas of their stars and keep them in line with the parts they played. Uh, Rock Hudson, who we mentioned a little earlier, and director Vincente Minnelli were forced to marry other studio stars to hide the fact they were gay men. Uh, Hudson eventually came out in 1985, shortly before he was one of the first notable celebrities to die of AIDS
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Loretta Young was a young starlet who became pregnant Uh, The studio said she was bedridden with a mysterious illness to cover for this When she, quote, recovered, this came hand in hand with the announcement that she was adopting an orphan child the studio had arranged this whole cover-up, and, of course, the, the orphan child was her own daughter. She adopted her own daughter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jean Harlow's morality clause, on the other hand, prevented her from getting married. She'd be more desirable to ticket buyers as a single woman. She, she played, you know, the the hot young thing. Yeah. Nobody's going to pay to see that if she's already taken.
0: Well, actually, people would, <laughs> but sure. Sure, sure. I mean... People were obsessive, just as obsessed back then with like celebrities. Mm-hmm. It was that was its own thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the the star system started because of the demand. Like, but yeah. before uh, stars were sold to the public in advertisements, or whatever, before they were even credited, there were fan magazines in the silent era yeah. making up names for these uncredited actresses that they wanted to see, and what's the next thing they're going to be in? Yeah. Now, there's also a long, long list of actresses forced into abortions. And some of these stories get very sad and very ugly. Uh, I I do want to note one of them was Judy Garland, who got the brunt of so, so much of the studio control in her life.
0: She had a very rough career in life.
1: Uh, Vincente Minnelli got married off to a star. That star was Judy Garland. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was his studio-mandated beard. Uh, This was after, in her teenage years, getting hooked on amphetamines and barbiturates to deal with the pressure and schedule of child stardom on the MGM lot. Uppers to keep filming for all those hours every day and downers so she could sleep when she was allowed to sleep. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about most of the uh, uh, assembly line, Mm -hmm. but now that you've got a movie, what guaranteed that it was going to be shown? What was going to pay for all of this... A uh, uh, factory churn
0: people going to see it in theaters so buy tickets
1: buying tickets is great if you run a theater but if you run a studio you just need to sell to the theater well that's why you own your own theater <laughs> that is true <laughs> so now let's talk about the the distribution apparatus and in particular the practice of block buying So in the 40s, those studio-owned chains made up about 17% of all theaters. Okay. That doesn't seem like a lot. In fact, that's, what, one in six? But they were the largest, most popular theaters. Those 17% made up 45% of domestic screenings.
0: That's a lot.
1: And that's America as a whole. If you're talking about individual uh, markets, it gets even more uh, monopolistic. Mm-hmm. In all but, I think, three cities over 10,000 people, uh, there were no uh, non-studio-owned theaters. Mm-hmm. So as an arm of the studio, those 17% showed what the studio wanted when they wanted it. It was guaranteed that, that there would be an audience. They just had to get you know people to come in and pay their quarter. Yeah. But how did the studios exert control over those other five sixths? Those other fifty-five percent of film rentals—that's where block buying comes in.
0: What is block buying?
1: <laughs> Basically, selling in bulk. You know, j- just like anything else, it, you you get your wholesale price by by taking the whole truckload instead of piecemeal.
0: So, like multiple movies, exactly, like film titles. Right. You will show these five. Kind of thing, or something, or more. But five,
1: five would have been nice.
0: I mean, more, but like,
1: yeah, you know. Uh, Adolf Zukor started the practice in 1918 when he was the head of Paramount, which is also when Paramount was called Famous Players Lasky.
0: Paramount's easier to remember.
1: Yeah, Paramount uh, became Paramount through a whole series of uh, mergers. And so, like, there was Famous Players, and there was Lasky, and at this point it was Famous Players Lasky. And eventually there were so many things getting added to the name. Let's just call it Paramount. We're going to call it Paramount Pictures at the end.
0: (laughs) We can't have 12 names attached to this title. And in
1: 1918, Mary Pickford was the biggest star around. Mm -hmm. Uh, If a theater wanted to show the next Pickford movie, they had to buy it along with a package of other films. That's where they get you. So every studio, aside from United Artists, engaged in block buying. Now, Paramount did it the most. (laughs) They offered up their entire year's lineup in an all-or-nothing package, 104 movies. Oh, man. With an agreement to show two per week for all 52 weeks of the year.
0: I think this is an interesting thing, too, to, like, point out, though, is, like, that's just one theater company or movie Mm -hmm. company. 104 movies. Yeah. Compared to like the amount of movies that, I mean, a lot of movies come out nowadays too, yeah. but compared to like from one like company. You
1: might have four or in a big week, you know, summertime, five new releases, ma- major wide releases in a week. Yeah. This is two from one studio. There's uh, seven other big studios.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, and then there's like some weeks, you know, in the year where there's like one thing. Yeah.
1: February. I'm forgetting February. <laughs>
0: There's a crazy amount of movies being produced then from a smaller amount of companies.
1: And this studio system, and in particular block buying, made that possible. Uh, So theaters were buying movies they hadn't seen. A lot of times because they weren't even made yet. (laughs) Just judging from a rough outline, a title, and who was supposed to be in it. Yeah. Uh, blocks would also include shorts, cartoons, newsreels, the entire evening's program. Uh, this version of block booking was called full line forcing. We force you to take the full line of product. Mm-hmm. So the system meant the pull of star power wouldn't only guarantee the sale of, you know, the A pictures, but the sale of the B movies too, because they were profitable before they were even made. Mm-hmm. Selling a full line in advance let the whole studio operate at capacity in all departments all the time. They had to make the stuff that was already promised to the buyers. Yeah. Again, the studio-owned theaters were exempt, and they had their own schedules. They could get a little flexibility, and that was part of why they crowded out these independent theaters who were locked into their block purchases. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a break real quick, but I want to leave you with a question.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, This was the debate that raged between uh, the studios who supported block buying and the independent producers who saw it as squeezing them out of audience. Mm -hmm. Did block booking free up producers to make riskier stuff because it wasn't really that risky? Or did it remove the impetus for films to stand out and be any good even because they were already guaranteed sales and screenings?
0: Oh, that's a tricky question. It's a
1: very tricky question. And that's why we're going to take a quick break. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you thought long and hard about the artistic implications of uh, possibly sketchy sales techniques.
0: I'm, I'm not supposed to give an answer, am I?
1: I wasn't really expecting one. Okay,
0: good. So I don't have (laughs) one.
1: But not just that debate, but there were other controversies uh, following block booking from the beginning. All the way back in 1921, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, launched an investigation It lasted 11 years. That's
0: a really long time.
1: There's a lot to investigate. Uh, In 1927, they sent a cease and desist letter to the major studios that was basically just ignored.
0: Cool. (laughs) They're just like, no. Nah.
1: Nah, we're going to keep doing it. Uh, In 1933, the Catholic Legion of Decency (laughs) – I'm sure there are a lot of fun at parties – uh, filed a complaint that blind buying meant studios could sneak in any manner of morally objectionable content into middle America. I'm
0: right, they can.
1: <laughs> and uh, 18 bills were introduced to Congress to make it illegal uh, between 1927 and 1939. Oh. One of them got really close to passing, but didn't. So feel free to look that up on, on your own time. The first major court case about this was FTC versus Famous Players Lasky et al.
0: Which became Paramount. Which if became you weren't Paramount. paying attention. Yes.
1: Uh this was filed before it was called Paramount, although a lot of the events we're going to talk about are after the name Switch. But that just applies to like their letterhead, not the the court case. It was still yeah. in the name of Famous Players Lasky. Yeah. Uh, so after Paramount and their co-defendants failed to comply with that C&D uh, letter, the Department of Justice filed suit. Uh, the suit was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and defendants were found guilty of violating antitrust law, and block booking was identified as the fundamental problem. Mm. But then studio bosses reached out to the Roosevelt administration. Of course they did! You know, it's 1930, uh, things are rough... Well, by by this time, it was, you know, 1932 because he got elected. Uh, Complying with the decision would have endangered the industry. And the last thing we need in 1932 is more layoffs. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on.
0: Well, I mean, that's true.
1: (laughs) So, the industry gained protection under 1933's National Industrial Recovery Act. Uh, The deal is basically that they didn't have to be bound by the Supreme Court's decision in exchange for allowing studio employees to unionize. Mm. The NIRA uh, was declared unconstitutional in 1935, throwing uh, block booking back into the spotlight of course, with that extra lead time, the studio system was, you know, fully solidified and running like a well-oiled machine.
0: What's NIRA?
1: The National Industrial Recovery Act.
0: Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, okay. Yes. You just hadn't given me an abbreviation yet of that. <laughs> so I was like, wait. That's
1: the only time it's going to come up. Oh, okay. we're, we're clear of that one now. Okay.
0: I'm thinking, like, film. I was like, I don't know what that means in film. No, I know <laughs> what that means, actually.
1: So then, that brings us to... The big court case. The one that counts. Oh, yeah. United States versus Paramount Pictures Incorporated at all.
0: No longer whatever, whatever, whatever.
1: Just good old Paramount. Yeah. Still kicking.
0: Still kicking. Uh,
1: In 1938, the Justice Department filed a new suit against the eight major studios, United States versus Paramount Pictures.
0: Why Why are they picking on Paramount if it's against eight major studios? Why does why Paramount get its name at the forefront and not one of the other ones?
1: In the first suit, it was because they were the biggest studio. But by now, by 1938, MGM had taken over, so I'm not sure.
0: They just wanted to pick on them.
1: Maybe because they instituted the block booking practice. Maybe, Maybe because they had the biggest blocks that were booked.
0: It just doesn't seem like... Fair, though, in like a, mm-hmm. a judgment thing when like it's the only one being named in the title, but you got like seven others.
1: There's so many debates in Hollywood about who gets top billing.
0: This is the one time you don't want it.
1: <laughs> it's the one time all these Hollywood lawyers were arguing, no, no, you first. Go ahead. Go.
0: You can do it. It's it's fine. We'll pay you money, so you go first. <laughs>
1: So the trial finally began in 1940. Like, you you might be noticing from all these dates, like, things started in 1927. All these studio lawyers were doing whatever they could to put off things going to trial, put off judgment being handed down, and certainly put off, you know, the the orders stemming from that decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now it's 1940, two years later. And after only a couple of months of argument, the trial is called off by another one of these techniques—a consent decree negotiated between the studio's lawyers and the Justice Department's lawyers—and it showed compromise on basically every issue. Mm-hmm. Block booking still allowed, but capped at five feature films for block. No, no shorts, no newsreels, no cartoons—just features—and no more than five.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Blind bidding was banned. Which is a fun thing to say before you do a speech. Just blind bidding is banned. Blind bidding is bad. Uh, And (laughs) studios were supposed to make every film available for preview screenings for buyers. It's a a trade show system. Yeah. So So
0: films had to be ready.
1: they, They had to be ready. They had to be screened. You had to invite representatives from all the studio districts around the country to see what the heck that you were asking them to show in their houses. Studios could still own their theater chains, so long as they sought federal approval before doing anything to grow their market share. Okay. Uh, and an enforcement board would be created to make sure all of the above points were followed. The, the industry would self-regulate. So the three miners backed out. Universal and Columbia didn't have theaters, so block booking was the only guarantee they had for film sales. It was... Their their one trick. Yeah. United Artists didn't have theaters or block booking, and they didn't want to be bound by some agreement that had nothing to do with their business. So they're just, peace, we're gone. Charlie Chaplin just waddled out and and (laughs) (laughs) grabbed a cab. Uh, Without total acceptance, uh, there was a loophole that allowed the five majors uh, the the choice to just ignore the consent agreement entirely and (laughs) keep on keeping on. (laughs) So that worked out. They got good lawyers. Uh, the allied theater owners, a body of independent theater owners, had a counterproposal. Let's keep block booking, but give theater owners the ability to reject films. I will take this package, except this one, this one, and that one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, antitrust action was supposed to benefit independent film producers, uh, the consent decree didn't. Uh, This uh, allied theater owners' unity plan was even worse. Uh, So these independent producers formed a new body, the Society of Independent Motion Picture Producers. Uh, Its founding members were the most prominent independent producers of their day. Still very famous notable names. We've got, alphabetically, Charlie (laughs) Chaplin, Walt Disney, Samuel Goldwyn, Alexander Korda, Mary Pickford... At the beginning and end of booking, there is Mary Pickford, (laughs) David O. Selznick, Walter Wagner, and Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. Now, you might be wondering, Samuel Goldwyn, isn't he the G in MGM? Yes, he is. Yeah, he is. But he hated working in the big studio, like, big business atmosphere, and he struck out as an independent shortly afterward. Yeah. He was also a founding player in Paramount back in the... Uh, uh, famous players days Yeah, before Lasky even
0: oh boy his name didn't get to go up there uh, he got his name somewhere else
1: he didn't even like the company his name was in what does he care <laughs> so the SIMPP uh, began bringing suits against theater chains uh, and filing amicus briefs in uh, other antitrust actions and all this attention brought the federal government to reinstate their case it It's one thing if the FTC says something. it's another if Walt Disney goes out to the people and says something mm-hmm. if Mary Pickford shows up in a in you know their their favorite celebrity mag talking about this, it's a lot better than anonymous federal agent number or whatever, yeah. So in 1943, since the consent decree was broken, there was another provision. They could refile the suit. They refiled the suit. Uh, and it goes to trial again. In 1946, again, <laughs> sandbagging, uh, there was a further ruling. The Hollywood Studios, including the little three, so all eight of them, were found guilty of a conspiracy in restraint of trade with charges that focused on block booking.
0: Wait, so even, like, the one that doesn't blockbook? Yes. Was found guilty of blockbooking.
1: Uh, the, the whole Hollywood establishment. I think another interesting thing is that a lot of independent producers involved in this body of independent producers were also involved in United Artists. Yeah. Chaplin was on both sides of this uh, case.
0: I'm very confused, though, how they're like, you're blockbooking. But we're not. We don't do that. Don't care. Do it. You're bad. Like, what?
1: How does that work? I mean, the the other seven certainly were.
0: Yeah, but that one's not. So how are they going after that one, too?
1: I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> it was a case that was just entirely against the major Hollywood establishment, including the one element of it that was outside the major hollywood establishment
0: if i if i was united artist i'd be during this whole thing like we're not we're not associated we're not them
1: (laughs) and again a lot of their members were on the other side we're supporting the government in this case against themselves themselves
0: for doing something
1: they didn't do in a sense yes So, this ruling from uh, the federal district court hinged on each film's copyright forming a limited monopoly. Okay. Uh, You know, MGM had a monopoly on The Wizard of Oz starring Judy Garland. Yes. (laughs) So, bundling these limited monopolies together was illegal. Owning theater chains was considered illegal, so long as separate theater chains would compete for advantage rather than colluding, uh, pooling themselves uh, for advantage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So as, as long as y'all didn't talk and tried to, you know, get each other, you can own all the theaters you want. Now, both the studios and the Justice Department filed for appeal with the Supreme Court because no one was really happy with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Supreme Court hearings began February 9th, 1948, another two years. (laughs) And the decision was read May 4th, 1948.
0: I'm surprised it was within the same year.
1: (laughs) I mean, when they get to court, it's pretty quick. It's just getting there and getting anything done with what the court says that takes forever. So the initial guilty verdict upheld. Block booking was now completely abolished. The five majors were also instructed to sell off their theater chains, breaking the vertical integration. Studio lawyers tried to draft another consent decree to self-regulate rather than be subject to the ruling, but uh, a campaign from the body of independent producers stifled it. RKO had recently been bought by Howard Hughes, uh, and he decided, no, we're just going to sell. We're going to sell our theaters, follow the ruling, because they had the smallest chain of theaters to sell, and therefore the most to gain by forcing the larger studios to comply. Mm. If everybody sells, we lost the least. (laughs) (laughs) Paramount soon followed. Uh, They wanted to get this antitrust campaign off their backs because it was holding them back from their investment in television. Mm. And so with two of the five complying, the others fell in line. Uh, before too long,
0: including United Artists, who you know didn't own these things.
1: <laughs> yeah, they they were an in instant compliance. <laughs> they were just
0: like, "Yep, we're good."
1: It took no time at we all. Don't have to do
0: anything, <laughs> we're all set.
1: Uh, so the end of the studio system. Studios began charging higher rental rates to theaters since those theaters weren't a division of their own company anymore. They had to charge more money. Uh, this percentage has risen even more over the decades, up to the point where, you know, for the first weekend, the studio might be getting 90% or more of your ticket price. Yes. Which is why popcorn is so dang expensive. It's what keeps the lights on at your local theater. That's why
0: you spend $15 on a and popcorn.
1: Or why your theater may have a program that lets you really discount films after they've been out for three or more weeks. Yes. Because by that point, the studio's cut has dropped a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, Without the guaranteed sales from block booking, studios got pickier with their films. Every movie had to appeal to buyers on its own merits. Uh, So relying even harder on stars, uh, but not being able to put them up in, you know, a big gilded stable anymore. Uh, By 1957, Hollywood made less than half the films per year than they had in the 20s. Uh, There was no floor or ceiling anymore. Blockbusters were now possible. You could have things like uh, Godfather or Jaws. There's a debate which one is the first real modern blockbuster. (laughs) But you could also have the kinds of flops that sank a company. That That was possible now. Yeah. And again, the, the B-movie designation was no longer a reality of production. It was just an aesthetic now. It, it was just nostalgia. Yeah. Independent producers and art, art house movies lost the biggest barriers to entry and began filling screens. It was great for them. Uh, smaller productions were also able to do more to avoid the haze Code. So all those restrictions on how much smooching and how much violence and who gets to have – who has to have happy endings and how you can show police officers started melting away. In the mid-50s, half of Hollywood productions came from outside the major studio houses. Big difference. With all this competition opening up, bigger stars and directors started their own production houses, bought their own scripts, went into business for themselves. Uh, To make up for their losses in legal fees, studios sold large catalogs of films to television. Yeah. Ones that they weren't planning to run in theaters again, so they might as well make a buck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where old movie channels came from. That's where uh, – no, that's that's not where It's a Wonderful Life came from. That was lapsing into a public domain. Oh,
0: yes, that was public domain. <laughs> that's why people care about that movie now It's due to a public domain.
1: Frank Capra's done better. We can all agree.
0: I don't like A Wonderful Life at all.
1: I like it, but he's done better. <laughs> and again, to save money, plenty of actors and other talent had their contracts cut short. Many of them became the first television stars. Uh, The the Paramount decision was huge for the blossoming medium of TV. So studios today don't hold talent on contract. Not for a number of years. You might hear about, like, a three-picture deal. Yeah. But that's not the same as a seven-year deal, and we will hop you up on amphetamine so you can make as many pictures as we need you to.
0: Yes, because there's a big difference between you're going to make three pictures over whatever time frame Mm -hmm. compared to, well... You can make, like, 70 pictures a year with us for seven years.
1: Take a look at Shirley Temple's IMDb. You will be shocked.
0: And those are, like, over the course of four years or something. (laughs) By the time that girl was 13, she was basically out of a career.
1: And, And now, while major studios have the capacity still to do so much in-house, there's a proliferation of so many independent companies uh, for any aspect of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, independent studios that anybody can come in and rent, prop shops, costume companies, effects. No studio owns Weta Digital. Mm-mm. No studio used to own ILM and then Disney bought Star Wars, so there you go. Uh <laughs> Independent distributors, everything, there's an independent option.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that, that's the biggest shift in how movies are made. I mean, the, the Golden Age brought us sound and technicolor and anamorphic lenses, but I would say that this court decision did more to change the face of movies than any of those.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so, Darlin, what have you learned?
0: I've learned that United Artists got screwed. <laughs> they got pulled into legal matters that apparently they did not need to be a part of. <laughs> and they but, needed some better lawyers to get out of that.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure they spent very little in their own defense because were the, the membership was spending more in prosecuting. Yeah. And with the way things shook out, it was the best thing for them
0: yes yes
1: they united artists won by losing
0: yes <laughs> i just i just want to imagine like their representative showed up to the trial and like everyone else is like yelling and you know going after whatever they're going after mm-hmm. and they're just like we're good uh, i'm here we're present
1: just shows up in his pajamas asking where the good lunch places are
0: yeah just like reclining in the chair <laughs> like do you, do you have anything you'd like to present nope
1: The studio system is a weird. I've got a real love hate relationship with it because I mean, it brought us Meet Me in St. Louis and Douglas Fairbanks, but this. It
0: brought us amazing work continuously by amazing people.
1: Yeah, through just abject exploitation.
0: Yes, complete ex like.
1: And unfair business practices. Yes. They spent more than two decades hounding them for unfair business practices. Yeah. This one business practice, never mind all the others.
0: Well, i just like, I mean, especially like the contract with the actors. Like, everyone talks about, you know, be famous and be a star and the glamorous life. Well, I mean, nowadays, it's like paparazzi in the public eye is constantly scrutinizing actors. But then it was literally like... Your boss. Your boss. Everything you do, everything your career stands on is what... Your contract is telling you. Mm-hmm. And they will make or break you entirely.
1: So if you want to see the fun, inspiring side of this, go watch Hail Caesar from <laughs> the Coen Brothers. I really love that movie.
0: I really like the movie, too. <laughs> Are we like the only ones? That was not a very fun. No, no, that did not go over well, that movie, to a lot of people.
1: Pretty mixed reaction, yeah. but I, I love the idea of Josh Brolin uh, finding faith and the backdrop of what has obviously been her about, you know, Jesus, but the faith he finds is not Christianity. It is love of the movies. Yeah. And even though he's the guy that's the most in the muck and sees the worst side of it day in and day out, he's still inspired by the power of the movies. Yeah. That's great. Everyone's it's also very funny. It's very funny.
0: <laughs> right now I'm just thinking of the Wee Bear Bears movie. spoof. Speech. Because <laughs> you just kept saying like the powers of the movie and yes. in the movie, I'm just thinking about like oh. that is why we go to the movies.
1: Yeah, I'm putting that in the show notes.
0: The bears <laughs> the it's Weaver a great bears it's a it. great
1: speech. And they got a really good selection of films to, to spoof spoof yeah. in there, yeah. With bears. So with that, I think we're gonna take another quick break. Okay. And be back with your letters. <laughs> Back, everybody. We got some mail. We got a bunch of mail. We got
0: a bunch of mail.
1: Uh, so our prompt for this episode was favorite lawsuit. Yes. I thought this episode was just going to be about uh, U.S. versus Paramount.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, doing the backstory, I realized no, the studio system's the real story here. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> that happens sometimes. What happens. you originally planned it changes a little. It morphs.
1: Yeah. S- setting the context became the the real meat of the episode. Yeah.
0: Uh, Sam sent us another email, not not answering this prompt, but some other things, uh, including a uh, favorite superhero is Empowered from Empowered.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about, you know, independent producers and creatively owned stuff. There yeah. You know. uh,
0: and Sam feels is from one of the most underrated series out there. So I guess check it out because I've heard of it.
1: Don't read it in public, but I've heard good things.
0: Okay, don't read it in public. There you go. <laughs> uh, favorite sports moment: uh, Sam is a Packers fan and uh, has been blessed with a lot of great memories, including the 2013 season uh, after Aaron Rodgers broke his uh, first broke his collarbone. That's a weird thing to have a memory of, but
1: I bet Aaron Rodgers remembers.
0: <laughs> does continue to go on uh, that it was a dark time. But it was amazing how how the team stayed afloat and uh, kept going in the season.
1: Well, when your only quarterbacks ever are all Hall of Famers, basically, for the last, what, 30 years? I don't know. I don't know football. Aaron Rodgers is very good at his job.
0: Uh, Favorite historical couple is Robert and Clara Schumann, Uh, both genius musicians. Robert was the brains. Clara was the talent. And uh, was also a virtuoso pianist and became a successful composer in later years. And favorite puppet is uh, Nikki from Avenue Q.
1: Thanks, Sam. Speaking of games, Final Gamer writes in... Let's talk about a different movie studio, this time as the plaintiff, Universal City Studios Inc. vs. Nintendo Co. Limited, when Universal tried to sue Nintendo over Donkey Kong and alleged similarity to their trademark on King Kong. Universal argued that it's a giant ape that smashes things named Kong, can it be more obvious? While uh, Nintendo argued that Universal doesn't own the rights to the image of a generic giant ape no matter what they smash. The, the big deciding factor was that King Kong was in public domain due to a previous case concerning Universal Studios versus RKO, where Universal won in order to gain the right to make their 1970s King Kong. Universal put King Kong in the public domain and then, a few decades later, tried to sue to say they owned it. That is one way to lose a lawsuit. Uh, Judge Robert Sweet ruled uh, that... Not only did they not have a leg to stand on, but they acted in bad faith knowing they did not own King Kong. And even if they did, the distinction between a comical, farcical, childlike ape and a ferocious gorilla was far too broad and sweeping to claim damages. I'm not sure which ape is which. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, calling him comical, farcical, and childlike would really hurt DK's feelings. But in the end, a Tiger Electronics game called King Kong, which Universal was involved with producing, was found to be an actual infringement of Donkey Kong, because it was a video game that was, I suppose, comical, farcical, and childlike. like Uh... So Universal got legally slapped for for trying to grab uh, Nintendo's gaming formula for their own game, and uh, had to pay Nintendo 1.8 million dollars for legal fees and lost potential revenue. Nintendo's lawyer. Uh, in all of the above, uh, was given a $30,000 sailboat from Nintendo as a thank you, who christened it the Do- Donkey Kong and gave him the the explicit right to use that name regarding sailboats. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Final Gamer.
0: Ian sent us an email with uh, their favorite lawsuit, which is the most bizarre la- lawsuit they are familiar with involves a Nebraska lawmaker trying to file a suit against God. In 2008, uh, State Senator Ernie Chambers uh, was angered by the court system, which he considered to be too open to the public and bogged down by frivolous lawsuits. And to highlight this, uh, he filed a lawsuit uh, that uh, was seeking an injunction against God to forbid causing natural disasters, Uh, societal hardships, and other forms of suffering. The main uh, issue in the lawsuit proceeding was that God had not been properly notified of the lawsuit against him, and thus the case was in violation of the Sixth Amendment. But Chambers argued that personal service was unnecessary as uh, the court itself acknowledges the existence of God. A consequence of that acknowledgement is a recognition of God's of God's omniscience, and since God knows everything, God has notice of this lawsuit. <laughs> uh, the case was thrown out uh, due to the filing being incomplete, as Chambers did not provide a valid home address for God.
1: Well, if you ever track him down, I'd like to give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> Thank you very much. Michael wrote in. Uh, after our last episode on Disney's Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. Michael's a former cast member at uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom and had some insider info and tidbits and factoids to share. We, we made a joke that uh, they don't like it if you call Animal Kingdom a zoo. Yeah. And Michael provided an old TV ad uh, where they coined the, the like faux African word Natazoo.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: just a lot of people going around saying Nata zoo, and so you're supposed to be welcomed in as they show all their shows and thrill rides and it's it's not a zoo guys it's not, it's not. the African village area uh, the, the fictional village is called Harambe which uh, a few years ago made things insufferable I'm sure yeah Uh, Festival of the Lion King is the highest rated show on all of property, and that I can understand. It wasn't my personal favorite, but I get it.
0: Lion King's catchy. It's got some catchy songs, it's got fun stuff in it.
1: wonderfully performed, and you know, the the acrobats and the the dancers, and no, it's all great. But I tell you why I didn't like it so much, it's Mm -hmm. a weird first impression thing.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, the audience uh, uh, participation where they make everyone make animal noises depending on what section you're sitting in. Yeah, it was just very kids summer camp to me, and I never got past that tone setting yeah. moment. But the show itself, yeah, it's great. Kali River Rapids was supposed to be more expansive. The tigers were supposed to be on the jungle area, but they just kept jumping on the routes. Oh man, no, I. So, what, why do we keep saying cast member, not staff member? Because, because you are cast members. Because you're part of the story. You have a role to play. And, uh, Michael was an attractions cast member in Asia, and part of the story of that role is that they're tourism people who do not believe the legends of the Yeti. So whenever someone asked about it, uh, they would pretend like they had no idea what they were talking about. But since they had to inform guests about you know, the mechanical nature of the ride, that it goes backwards uh, at one point. Uh, They'd say, so, don't be worried. If something goes wrong, we have an escape system that takes you backwards into the mountain.
0: (laughs) It's all about how you word it.
1: Now, Expedition Everest does not go to Everest. The mountain it goes to is the Forbidden Mountain, which is the Yeti's domain. When you look at it from the outside, there's a peak all the way in the back, that one's Everest. Oh, There are no flowers planted around the Dino Institute because the, the flora around there is limited to the sorts of plants you would find during the Cretaceous period before the evolution of flowers. Uh, that's also where they keep the crocodile because crocodilians are pretty similar, at least on the outside, to how they were that many millions of years ago. <laughs> Uh, some other remnants of Beastly Kingdom, not only is there the dragon on the sign, but also a dragon on the turnstiles, along with a dinosaur and the elephant, and one of the parking lots is named the Unicorn Lot. Yes. Another uh, remnant that's not there anymore, the, the riverboat cruise had a section where you'd see a skeleton of a medieval knight uh, that got messed up by that dragon that never actually went anywhere.
0: No dragons.
1: All of the various themed areas have their own themed greetings uh, that cast members are, are meant to use. As an Asia cast member, uh, Michael would greet you with Namaste. But if you were in Africa, you'd be hearing Jambo. And uh, around Dynorama, you would hear, Howdy, Cousin! Because Chester and Hester's Dynorama is a tourist trap built in a hick town. And most of the people working there are cousins of Chester and Hester. <laughs>
0: Michael also says, Don't know what the pin, what Pandora's greeting is. Maybe it's yeah, there's a sequel coming. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh Michael just wants to give a, a heartfelt shout out to all the animal caretakers and every cast member who got to interact with and present uh the animals because they love their their job. I think is something common to uh any sort of, you know, zookeeper, animal trainer, biologist.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, those aren't easy jobs.
1: Pet rescue shelter worker.
0: <laughs> you have to like what you're doing to yeah,
1: do yeah. it. Yeah, and they're, they're just very open with speaking about the, the lives of the animals they're entrusted with. And so, yeah, uh, Michael even says the only other cast members who match their level of knowledge are Living Seas cast members. Again, in charge of creatures. Yes. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful letter and... and teaching us stuff about things we taught other people about. Yeah. There's a lot of teaching to do in the world today.
0: (laughs) RJ sent us their favorite legal case as well, and it is right there with what Final Gamer said, also about the Universal Studios against Nintendo court case, about King Kong versus Donkey Kong.
1: Who do you think would win in a fight?
0: I mean, King Kong is, like, bigger.
1: Yeah, King Kong fought Godzilla Donkey Kong just fights an Italian guy. Yeah. Well, one thing uh, RJ does point out is that in addition to the sailboat...
0: Oh, yes. Nintendo later went on and named a video game after him. Or a video game character after him. What video game character would that be, do you know?
1: I'm pretty sure John Kirby is the inspiration for the name... Of Princess Daisy, exactly.
0: <laughs> no, you're wrong. It's Kirby. It's
1: Kirby. Kirby. Everybody loves Kirby. I love Kirby.
0: Thank you, RJ. Uh, Sarah also sent us an email about favorite lawsuit, and that is a case of Stambovsky versus Ackley. Uh, mm-hmm. The case in it was about a dispute over the value of a house that was widely considered to be haunted, and in the community but the buyer didn't know and wasn't told. So the buyer claimed that the haunting should have been disclosed because it would have lowered the value of the house, and the court did side with the buyer, determining that the house was legally haunted and the seller should have disclosed it. And apparently, if you read the actual court's decision, it has a lot of ghost puns in it.
1: I'm sure it does. Uh,
0: Sarah also sent us some uh, other names of court cases that she enjoys.
1: These are in-REM cases, uh, stuff from asset forfeiture.
0: Yes. So United States versus approximately 64,695 pounds of shark fins. Uh, United States versus 95 barrels, more or less, of alleged apple cider vinegar. (laughs) (laughs) Alleged alleged.
1: I wonder if that was part of the one of the questions to be tried. Uh,
0: United States versus article consisting of 50,000 cardboard boxes, more or less each containing one pair of clacker balls. Okay, here's what I have problem with that is it cardboard or is it corrugated cardboard? There is a difference between cardboard and cor- corrugated cardboard boxes.
1: Yeah, the corrugation I think is the difference.
0: Yes. You you can't tell a person who works in corrugated cardboard that it's just a cardboard box. They get very offensive.
1: Natazoo
0: Not Notazu. Thank you, Sarah.
1: Ah, uh, Porin asks us to try to guess the largest claims for damage in a lawsuit. Darling, would you like to guess? Uh, a lot. How about <laughs> two thousand decillion dollars? Decillion. The title of the case is Anton Parasama versus Alban Payne Store, CarePoint Health, Hoboken University Medical Center, Kmart Store 7749, St. Luke's Emergency Department, New York City Transit Authority, City of New York, New York City MTA, LaGuardia Airport Administration, and it just goes on and on. And yes, he was seeking $2,000. That's 36 zeros after that, too.
0: It's a lot. It's
1: a lot of dollars. Apparently, the complaint was that a dog bit his finger on a bus, and he was overcharged on some stuff afterward, including coffee at LaGuardia, presumably coffee from that Albon Pain. I guess. I guess. Now, the, the that claim is calculated to more than the value of all humanity's goods and services in its entire history, uh, and if the defendant conquered the world and put the entirety of human economy to pay, uh, the son would die long before they could pay off uh, the damages and seeking a punitive fine on top of that. Yeah. New York, New York, what a wonderful time!
0: I assume he did not win. I
1: don't think. <laughs> I don't think so. Thanks, Poren. Uh Peter writes in to talk about two memorable cases, uh, the first Liebeck versus McDonald's restaurants and Knight versus Wedderburn. Now, uh, Liebeck versus McDonald's is the famous case where a lady was given uh, dangerously hot coffee. It spilled and caused excruciating burns. Mm -hmm. Now, this gained national notoriety as a punchline. Of course the coffee's hot. What do you think? What are you getting these extensive, ridiculous payouts for? But everybody who's taken the time to look at the details sees that, yeah, this is really messed up, uh, and the, the beyond the damages, the requirement to not serve dangerously hot and unsafe beverages have probably uh, prevented a lot of pain and anguish in the years since. Now, the latter is a lesser-known Scottish case. In short, it's a, a very unique court case where Mr. Knight uh, worked as a servant in the household of a Mr. Wedderburn. He demanded uh, wages for his labor, was refused, and then he left. Mr. Wedderburn went after him and had him arrested, and then they they went to court over this issue. Now the rest of the story. This happened in the mid 1700s. Mr. Knight was bought as a slave in the Caribbean before they went back to Scotland. Uh, this is the case that set the precedent that no arrangement of slavery would be recognized in Scotland and that by living there, Mr. Knight was no longer Mr. Wedderburn's property. And if he wanted uh, to get any work out of Mr. Knight, he would have to hire him and pay him as a free man. Nice. Mr. Wedderburn declined that offer and fired another servant former slave that is to say after she married and became mrs knight (laughs) so thanks peter
0: james uh said their favorite classic lawsuit is brown versus board of education but chose to tell us about the mario party one class action lawsuit where nintendo (laughs) was sued because our mario party one hand control stick spinning games and kids use their palms to spin the control stick and the Nintendo 64 control stick is not palm friendly, and a oh, lot of no. kids tore up their the skin in their hands, which led to parents saying uh, or suing Nintendo and winning. Uh, Nintendo apologized and offered all they offered to uh, give gloves to everyone so they could play the game. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, James.
1: And then you can look like Mario because you got gloves. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mario.
1: kieran writes in uh, to talk about his favorite lawsuit united states versus one package of japanese pessaries just one package
0: not two just one. the
1: one one is too many according to the united states this was a case involving uh, the late great activist Margaret Sanger and Dr. Hannah Stone. Uh, contraception was legal in the U.S. at the time, mostly due to Sanger's earlier work, but highly restricted, and contraceptives were only available uh, as a prescription. And uh, there was all kinds of like nickel and dime re- restrictions uh, because they were treated as obscene materials. Of course, uh, Margaret was uh, an ardent feminist socialist and uh, believed that birth control was an important part of improving the lives of uh, women everywhere, especially the urban poor. And so by 1932, she thought that uh, her efforts and those of others had shifted public opinion enough to provoke this lawsuit to get uh, the, the laws restricting access to birth control changed. Now, pessary that's an old name for a diaphragm. They were pretty popular in the 30s because uh, men would refuse to wear condoms. So it was up to uh, uh, vagina havers to have the barrier. Mm -hmm. So uh, the pessaries won the case and won on appeal. Uh, A judge pointed out that the law at the time permitted abortion in the case uh, of a, a woman's life being in danger. But did not support a woman whose life would have been in danger if she got pregnant to prevent the pregnancy in the first place. Mm -hmm. So this victory led to the full legalization of birth control and also the founding of the Birth Control Federation of America, which 10 years later changed its name to Planned Parenthood, uh, a name that Margaret did not like very much because she thought it was a little too euphemistic. We do birth control here. Let's be proud about it, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn more about Margaret Sanger from plenty of places, including one of Kieran's articles at headstuff.org. Very cool. Thank you very much for your letter. And thanks, everyone, for all your letters. Yeah. Got a lot of good ones this mm-hmm. time. We did. Now, if you would like to send us a letter for whatever reason, uh, you got a show suggestion, you got a question, comment, story to tell, uh, prompt that tickles your fancy, where can those go?
0: Those can go to HistoryHoney'sPodcast at gmail.com.
1: That's right. Uh, now we got a bit of an announcement. After forty-one straight episodes, we're going to take a quick little break.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Our uh, holiday travel plans.
0: Things are just complicated.
1: Things are complicated. They're making a December 19th episode not possible for us. So we're going to take a four-week break before coming back at you with our New Year's special. Yes. So our prompt for that next episode coming at you January 2 Mm -hmm. uh, to kick 2018 off right is tell us your favorite thing from 2017. Yeah. And again, those prompts and whatever else you have to say that you might want to get right on the show can go to
0: historyhoneyspodcast at com.
1: You can also get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All of the fun socials.
0: Yes, at historyhoneys.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, something else we would love, love, love for you to do. Maybe you consider it a holiday gift. Uh, Hanukkah's coming, so give us eight ratings and reviews. Or just the one if you celebrate something else. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, you can also tell a friend. Uh, word of mouth is very helpful for getting our show to new ears.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your ratings and reviews help us find new listeners through the magic of uh, uh, algorithms. But word of mouth gives it that personal touch that that really helps our family grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess since uh, this is our final 2017 episode, mm-hmm. I like to uh, wish everybody... A happy holiday. Here's hoping that your new year brings uh, new opportunities and and new prosperity and happiness. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it, it will be weird not doing this. It will. For, for a couple weeks. But it gives us and you a chance to, to catch up on yeah. life.
1: When when we looked at just what reality was going to do to us, you know, it, it It tore us up a little bit to have to skip an episode. I I hate doing it. We
0: we haven't, like, done that. At least I don't think we have. Never. We have not done that. We've
1: never been even a day late.
0: We need the time this time.
1: (laughs) I I hope you'll agree we've earned it after 41 (laughs) without fail.
0: Yes. Uh, But if you miss us, you can, you know, go listen to Sex Archie. Go listen to Sex Archie. Because that will have uh, a couple episodes.
1: Yeah, we are because they aren't on break quite yet. Not yet. (laughs) Anyhow, thanks again, everyone, for all your support and your love and your letters. Uh, But with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.